Hey there, Lions. Did you know that you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content by joining our paid support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride? For as little as $5 a month, you can help us grow this program to new heights. Learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. You know, whoever has the money has the power. And it went from the patient to the insurance companies and under the Affordable Care Act to the government. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty kittens. And if you keep listening to this program, you just might one day grow up to be Liberty Lions as well. But one step at a time. You can take another step today by listening to today's episode, episode number 294 of this program. That means you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 294. My guest today is a board-certified otolaryngologist. That's ear, nose, and throat doctor in the common speak. She is the host of Medicine on Call, a weekly radio show and podcast. She is also the author of the book, Big Medicine, The Cost of Corporate Control, and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. I am so pleased to welcome Dr. Elena George. Dr. George, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. All right. I'm glad to hear it. Because if not, well, we wouldn't really have much more to talk about, but we have a lot to talk about because now obviously this is a subject that just continues to come up, uh, not just here on the podcast. It's a, it's a, we've done several shows about the medical industry and, and how it's sort of tied into all these government regulations. But it's the thing I, I end up finding myself talking about the most in real life with, with regular people, friends of mine, people at work, people that aren't necessarily political, but obviously politics affects them whether they want it to or not. And, and uh, healthcare is, is one issue that, that affects almost everybody. So I want to start by finding finding out just how you got into the field of of medicine in the first place. What inspired you to to pursue that line of work? Well, I have to say that I've always wanted to be a doctor from the time I was a child. It just um, changed about what specialty I wanted to practice. It's been something that I found that I find rewarding, the ability to help people, the ability to be their advocate, and the ability to give people, empower them. There's nothing more important than having your health And being able to put patients in a position where they take control of their life is really rewarding, and I love it. What about that specific specialty that you pursued? How did you wind up becoming an ear, nose, and throat doctor, otolaryngologist? I had to actually look up the pronunciation before before the interview. I'm not going to lie. I didn't just know that. It was a beautiful job. (laughs) It was a beautiful job, I got to tell you. What inspired you to pursue that specific uh, course? Well, it's one of the specialties that you get to practice medicine and surgery. You get to see adults, children. You get to see healthy people. You get to see people who are really ill and emergency situations. So it's never boring. There's just something different every day. And it's, it was really hard to get into. So I love the challenge. Um, I also am not a singer, but I fell in love with opera when I was in college. And it was one of the only specialties that you can work with singers. So all of those things together pushed me towards ENT. That makes perfect sense because, uh, you know, for people that, that their profession relies on their throat and that whole area, I mean, that, that ties right into to what you ended up pursuing and, and a passion you had as well. And it's always great when you can tie a, a, a real-life passion into what becomes your line of work. It's, it's a blessing, honestly. I love what I do. I get up every morning and go to work. And if I didn't have to deal with insurance companies and just the patient, it would be unbelievably rewarding. 
Now, Dr. George, at what point in pursuing this line of work did you start to, I guess, obviously it's probably there from the very beginning in some way, but at what point did you start to notice the effects of government regulation and how they affected the way doctors operate in their practice and how it eventually affected you when you went into your own private practice? The first year I got out of residency, um, I was one of the, the last graduating classes in medicine where it was really patient-centered. There wasn't, um, what do you call, uh, managed care. The insurance companies had not really taken a, a strong a foothold as they have now. So there really was very little in, you know, involvement of, of the middleman. And that didn't happen until I went into private practice um, my first year out of residency. That was the year that capitation and managed care came online. And doctors were signing contracts for insurance companies because they were under the impression that if they didn't, they wouldn't get any patients. And that was the beginning of this slippery slope. And that, that's kind of what led to the state we're in now, where healthcare became a little more cartelized, maybe a little bit slowly at first, but over time, uh, with the increased regulations, eventually you saw what, what sort of led to the fact that people were calling for a solution, calling for something from the government. People see their premiums rising. People are mm-hmm. having problems getting healthcare. And then we see the institution of Obamacare as the solution. So what, what, what struck you right away when you saw the proposed bill? Uh, you've been a very vocal advocate. Obviously, you wrote a whole, a whole entire book basically uh, coming out against the approach taken by the Affordable Care Act, as it's called. What stood out to you right away as red flags that told you this is just not going to do what they're saying it is? Because it was managed care revisited. When I left, when I opened my, or went into practice, I went into a large group initially, and that was in uh, 1998. The patients were, they had to go through gatekeepers, they had to have a primary care doctor refer them for specialty care. Patients were really unhappy with that system. And it subsequently fell apart. You notice that the HMO plan started to disappear. People were allowed to go through PPOs, which is the, the, the type of plan where you can go directly to whomever doctor you want to. And there was very little out-of-pocket costs. It was mostly co-payments, $50, $25 with no deductibles. That was how the, the healthcare system ended after the capitation. And Obamacare is really that same process on steroids because the government now is the is the entity that controls the pot. You know, whoever has the money has the power. And it went from the patient to the insurance companies and under the Affordable Care Act to the government. So we've seen a centralization of the healthcare system. We've seen doctors and patients placed on the outside looking in while some, you know, faceless entity is deciding that they know what's best for both of us. And there is nothing like medicine. There's no other profession like it. It's an art just as much as it's a science. And you cannot treat patients by the number. You cannot use algorithms. You can't use population and community-based medicine to help people. It doesn't work. What it does do is cost more money. You pick winners and losers. And the price continues to go up, and everybody now is in a position of paying for something that they can't afford. And when you talk about picking winners and losers, how does the ACA, how does that actually choose some different winners in the situation, and and who are those winners? Who's actually benefiting from that bill and the regulations in it? The insurance companies, the hospitals, big pharma, those are the winners. And I'll give you a perfect example. 
uh, Mayo Clinic recently came out with a statement that they were no longer going to take any any um, Obamacare patients at all because they were losing money. Now, those patients get cancer. Those patients get very ill. Now you're going to tell me they're going to be turned away based on their insurance. It's created a two-tier system. Those who have money can afford it. Those that don't get relegated to um, the Medicaid side of our healthcare system, which is not very good medicine. They don't have enough doctors. The formulary is not what you're allowed to choose for the average patient. It doesn't work as well. And you wait longer. I don't want to be in a system like that and pay for it. Obamacare is essentially Medicaid for all. It's not Medicare for all. It's not in private insurance. It's Medicaid. One thing you go back to often in your book is, is this concept that Obamacare has produced health care that nobody can even afford to use. I mean, mm-hmm. one example is myself. I had prior to the passage of the ACA, I, I was a freelancer for over a decade, purchased my own health insurance, and I always had a, a catastrophic plan. It was a you know mm-hmm. fairly low premium, fairly high deductible. And for the most part, I paid cash if I went to the doctor. And I, I really I never thankfully never really used that insurance because by the name catastrophic, I would only use it if something truly bad happened, cancer or I break my leg or something like that. Exactly. Um, and under Obamacare, that level of coverage was was essentially banned. I was not allowed to have that insurance anymore. Instead, the, the, lowest, pre, the lowest plan that I was allowed to get, the bare minimum, uh, according to those rules, was going to cost me three times the amount in premiums. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but my deductible was almost tripled. So like just like you point out in the book how people can't afford to use their care, for, to, to actually use that plan, which I never went, I ended up going with a health sharing plan, which I know you're a big advocate of, um, Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, you know, to use that plan, I would have to spend three hundred dollars a month on my premiums, that times twelve months, plus another twelve thousand in deductibles before I see a dime. I mean, right there, even if you got that insurance, you know, who's got thirteen grand? A lot of people don't have that kind of money money to even front before they even get to use use the coverage in the first place. So right away, you can just see just from my my one example how many people are are getting shut out by this kind of legislation. Well, think about how it's set up. And this is what people don't know. Only 5% of the medical care in our country is for catastrophic care. 95% of the healthcare dollar is spent on people with routine problems. Routine problems, okay? That 5% is spread through the entire 95%. So you're paying more money to cover somebody with a catastrophic illness. So 5% of the people take up over 60 or 70% of the healthcare dollar. That's where the problem lies. So instead of having a separate track for the people with catastrophic illnesses that subsid- that is subsidized by the government or the state, that would be a lot cheaper than spreading that payment through the entire population for people like yourself or like myself, thank God. I don't use the healthcare system. Thank God I'm healthy. But we're paying the 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 rate for everybody. And if you add to that, the 26 uh, people up to 26 year old, six years old, were allowed to stay on their parents' health care plan, you just removed another segment of healthy people who could share in that burden. So the young people and the healthy people were really on the hook to cover the sicker folks in our, in our country. And this is not a slight on the sick people. I have no problem with that, but this is not an efficient way to do it. The government could literally spend, just put aside a certain amount of money per state, whatever they want to do, for the sickest people to help them pay for their premiums and support them in their health care needs. 
leaving the rest of the healthcare pie to be cheaper for everybody. I mean, it's just not well thought out. It's just a matter of centralization. And as I said in my book, which I truly believe, this is all a slippery slope to single payer. Every time something happens that doesn't work out and people get so frustrated, the government is asked to step in and help. And they are ready and able and willing to make it a single payer system. But for those folks who think it's going to be Medicare for all, I caution them, it won't be. It will be Medicaid for all. And that means a lot of rationing, a lot of you have to be sicker than, you know, a certain, you know, how can I put it, a continuum of sickness until you get an intervention. So you're not going to get your glaucoma surgery. You may not get your knee replacement. You may not get the things you need until you're really an extremist. And I've seen it from the inside. There are younger and younger people in hospice now than I've ever seen with things that you can, you can treat. That's how they're saving money, by lowering the standard of care, by waiting, making you wait longer and get sicker before you can access it, and then pricing you out. It's just ridiculous. It's not health care. It's control. This concept of rationing is something I really want to focus in on a little bit because a lot of people that don't have maybe the, the economic background might not fully understand why that's something that's going to naturally occur when, when you're sort mm-hmm. of centralizing a system like this. So why is rationing necessary essentially under the current system that we have? And why is it, is it basically going to get worse the more and more that they regulate, the more and more that they centralize the system, uh, especially if they actually do go all the way to a single-payer system, which, like you said, a lot of people call that a right-wing conspiracy, that this is just laying yeah. the groundwork for a, a single-payer. But yeah. I have friends who are now saying we need this proves we need single-payer. So, yeah. I mean, I, you see, you see real-world evidence of it anyway. <laughs> you do. I mean, this is a natural human tendency. You have pain. You want to alleviate it. I totally get that. But this is not the answer. It is never the answer to give up your power to something else, ever, if you can help from doing it. Nobody cares more about you than you do or your loved ones do for you. If you become a cost center, and I'll answer your question in a second, I just want people to understand how this all got started if they go to the to the internet and look up the complete lives system by Ezekiel Emanuel, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act, he is a bioethicist. He wrote a paper that stated that the healthcare dollar, a majority of the healthcare dollar, should be spent between the ages of about 18 and 52. That's where the productive people are. That's where the healthcare dollar should be spent. God forbid you fall in outside of that of that. Uh, that uh, curve, because you, he doesn't believe you should get a lot of money spent on you. So what happens? You know, because <laughs> he's trying to save money. Yeah, they're ba- they're basically using a system, and I think it's modeled somewhat off the, off the system that they use in the United Kingdom. But they yep. uh, they essentially place a dollar value on a life, and that dollar value will change as you age. And essentially, there's going to be a point where the treatment that you need and the money that that will cost will not correlate with your dollar value, and then you will essentially be told, "Sorry, you're not going to get the treatment. This doesn't match our formula." That's exactly right. And it has happened in the UK where they were putting people on a pathway uh, where once they reached a certain age and once they had a certain medical condition, they stopped treating them. And we're talking about withdrawing food and just withdrawing water until they passed away. I mean, it's just really unbelievable stuff. And they were being paid for that. The The doctors are being paid to put people on this Liverpool care pathway is what it was called. They finally, I think, stopped it, but it became a huge to-do in the UK. And I want people to look at that system, look at the Canadian system. Those people who want something fast come to the United States to get it done, 
or they go into the privatized side of their healthcare system to get treatment because the standard of care is lower. And let me talk now about rationing, okay? There's a lot of different versions of it. The first one is what we already talked about, self-rationing. If you can't afford your premium, you can't afford your deductible, you will not go to the doctor until you absolutely have to. That's self-rationing. You're denying yourself medication, doctor visits, care. You end up in an ER because you can't afford to pay your copay or deductible. That's that's been happening across the board in the United States. And I should point out that's not always a bad thing. For example, if if uh, you know if, if I just sprained my ankle and I know it's going to cost me two hundred dollars to go to the doctor to get that fixed, but I know it's a sprain. I know if I just stay off it for a few days, then you know I, I'm not going to need that health care. Then I, then I, then that that sort of rationing actually is actually kind of logical. Whereas if we we change it so everybody has the same health care, and let's say this is changing now, but you know back ten years ago, everyone you just, you just pay a twenty dollar copay and you show up at the doctor. Well, if it cost me only 20 bucks to go to the doctor, I might not use the rationing. I might just show up because now it's only 20 bucks. And hey, even though I know it'll get better on its own, I might as well get pay 20 bucks and get them to look at my ankle because it's only 20 bucks. Yeah, but there's the flip side. As an ENT, I've seen the people who have a sore throat and, oh, it's just a sore throat. Next thing, it's a peritonsillar abscess and they have a trach. So, I mean, it's a lot of different layers of should you deny yourself. Yes, you should be responsible and there's self-responsibility. I totally get that. But you shouldn't be, I have to take my blood pressure medication, but I can't afford it and I stroke out. That's unacceptable. Right. So there has, to be, there has to be a system that's based on real costs. And we will I'm hopefully discuss that in a minute. But I just want to go back to the rationing for a second. The other side of the rationing is the fact that there are less doctors practicing medicine. I'm an independent doctor in private practice. We only count for 30% of the practicing doctors in our country. We used to be 65% used to be us. We've gone out of business. We've sold our practices to hospitals. We've killed ourselves. That is a staggering figure. It is. 400 doctors a year commit suicide since the passage of of Obamacare. That should tell your listeners how bad it is in the healthcare profession. Do you have any indication of what that number might have been pre-Obamacare? I mean, do you, do you directly relate that to how much more difficult it is to be in that profession? Yes, absolutely. Not only are doctors killing themselves, but medical students are doing it as well. So there's something going on in the mindset and the psyche of the doctor in, in the doctor profession that we're very unhappy with. And I can tell you it's because we are being, in, being put in a position to practice against our standard of care, our Hippocratic Oath, we are considered to be frauds if we underbill somebody. If we underbill, that means we don't charge enough because we're giving somebody a free service. That's fraud under, under Medicare. You, I mean, I can understand overcharging, but not undercharging. So Wait, it's actually considered fraud under Medicare yes. to give a discount, essentially. Yes, it is. You or cannot even free give free care. care. Unless you don't charge them at all, but you certainly right. can't. I'll just not bill for this. No, you can't do that. But you could so, not give a, like a ninety percent discount to somebody no. who in need if you wanted to. No, and not bill Medicare. You cannot. You can right. give it to them off the Medicare rolls completely. But if you submit that claim and you didn't bill for everything that you did, or you undercoded, let's say you coded down to make it a cheaper office visit. That's fraud. Now, that's unbelievable because you would uh-huh. think a government program would want to save money. If they can get a doctor who will charge less than the amount they're saying that should be charged, that should be a, a victory for government, right? You would think. <laughs> but the first time you do it, it's a slap on the wrist. The third time you do it, second time it's $25,000 fine. 
The third time you do it, it's a fine and prison. That's why I'd stop taking Medicare because there's no way I can look over my shoulder every moment for somebody to come in my office and audit me. If you're audited under Medicare, you're out of business because they shut you down. This is not a system that is conducive to taking care of your patients, not anymore. So Medicare is one part of it. The meaningful use section, which is the metadata gathering, where they're now asking doctors to ask patients if they have guns in their home, if they ever tried to hurt themselves. I understand if you're a psychiatrist, I get that. But this is everybody, pediatricians. Um, they're asked to, parents are asked if their child thinks he's a boy or a girl. These are not questions that a, an average doctor visit needs to entail. And with the electronic medical record system, you have to answer these questions or you cannot close your chart. So they are under duress forcing doctors to become agents of the government and not advocates for the patient. And that I have a problem with. And I think most doctors who understand the system really do, because you, you're, the patient's not going to tell you the truth. You know that it can be used against them because it's not a locked chart. The HHS can look through the health records. The pharmaceutical companies can. The pharmacy benefit management company can. The IRS can. This is not a privatized or a private system anymore. It's on the cloud and it's freely accessible. And any error that's made can follow the patient. And I like to use this example because people really freak out when they hear this. But if as an ENT, I have a patient who wants to stop smoking and I write them for something called Wellbutrin, which is an antidepressant class of medicine, but we're using it to help them stop smoking, that medication flags their chart and they will be, if you're looking through metadata, they will assume to be having, being depression. They would have a diagnosis by default. What happens if they want to get a job? What happens if they want to get a firearm legally? It may follow them. And this is what I mean by unintended consequences. You don't know what, how your medical record can be used against you. And through no fault of your own, through no fault of your doctor, these things can get out of control. Sure. And whenever I bring something like like that up, I mean, the fact that doctors are being told to ask about guns in the home and yet you hear a lot of talk nowadays, even from people that are, are pretty good on, on gun rights, even a lot of those people will, will kind of concede, well, we do need to keep guns out of the hands of the mentally ill. But what you just said there, I mean, that that's just one tiny example of I'm sure a possible many of how something really unrelated to mental illness even. And I, and I don't even support doing that for the actually mentally ill necessarily. Mm-hmm. But, but if someone is actually quitting smoking, a positive thing something we should want to encourage. Exactly. Uh, you'll give them this medicine, but because it has that medicine and that, and that medicine is used for depression, that's just a number. It's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not an, a diagnosis like a real doctor would make. If it goes in that chart, becomes nothing more than a number, and that number now indicates this person might be depressed, and who knows, someday exactly. that, that will correlate to them not being legally allowed to purchase a firearm. It's all about gathering data. I mean, the chart, the medical chart has become a, a metadata gathering system. They want to perform population-based healthcare. The, you know, looking at groups of patients to figure out what medicines work. It's very, it's, it's just gross uh, data analysis and extrapolating that to care. We've now gone from treating patients as an individual to treating them by a number. So we see things like, you know, something called evidence-based medicine. Let me break that down for you. Basically, what that means is the drug companies have underwritten these peer-reviewed articles, et cetera, but they're underwritten by the drug companies. 
And it always comes out that their drug is the thing that you should use for the X disease. When I was a medical student, for example, having high blood pressure was anything above 120. 120 over 80 used to be normal 10, 15 years ago. That's now considered to be pre-hypertensive. And they recommend you put the patient on a medication. So all of the guidelines have changed. You're sicker with smaller parameters. Uh, cholesterol of 250 used to be normal. You're now on a statin medication. Who stands to gain? That is my only question through all of this. As a thinking, critically thinking adult, you have to think about who stands to gain and you have to take your power back. If you're feeling great, you're 80 years old and you're you know, running the marathons and your blood pressure is 125, do you really need to be on a hypertensive medication based on a number? This is, this is the no brain that's part of the healthcare system. It's costing people more. People are on more medications and they're not more healthy. They're sicker. Something's wrong with the system. Well, Dr. George, we're going to dig a little bit more into just what is wrong with the system. But first, I need to take a minute out to let everybody out there know just what's right in the podcasting world. Because if you love liberty, you're going to love today's sponsors. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty, rock and roll. And Dr. George, this really goes back to something you discuss in the beginning of the book and something you discuss in the beginning of this interview. And it's, it's really a theme that carries throughout your work. And again, that is the, the doctor-patient relationship. That is what's being strained here. And and mm -hmm. it's not about charts. I mean, you, you have a part in your book in the beginning, which I really love, where you talk about how you diagnose a patient. And it's not by sitting in a, in a computer and, and punching in all their, all their information and not even looking at them. It's about actually having a conversation with that patient, uh, you know, getting verbal cues from them physical cues and actually really doing a, a thorough analysis of their entire person, whereas right. all of these government regulations seem to be steering everything away from that, steering uh, doctors to, like you said, have to go work for the big hospitals, have to shut down their private practice and essentially just become other, essentially number crunchers when they should be the opposite. They should be human beings relating to human beings and, and trying to help them get better. They've monetized the healthcare system. The patients and doctors have been monetized in this system. The good news is you don't have to belong to that. You don't have to get into that system if you don't want to. You joined a, health, a medical cost sharing, Christian sharing ministry. I did. And we're completely removed from that system. It's cheaper outside of this centralized insurance-based system. The, the prices in the system are completely arbitrary. They're not real. If I tell you that I can take a patient to a freestanding surgery center to remove their tonsils and it was $2,500 to do that, from the time we walked in, my surgery fee to the time they left, 
versus $9,000 for the same thing if I took them to the hospital, you would be, why? You would ask that question. That's the, that's the reason why it's so expensive. There is a, a system that's in place that has no attachment to reality of the cost of healthcare. The hospitals charge 10 or 15 times more what a private doctor will charge. They tack on facility fees. There's no reining in anything in that system. And that's what the system is now based on. There is no competition and they don't want any. Oh, actually, that's not true. We are the competition. Private, private doctors, independent surgery centers, independent labs. We are the actual real healthcare system, but we don't have the means to advertise like they do. We don't have the, the money to let people know that we're out there. It's word of mouth. And people need to know what their choices are, I believe, so they can make an informed decision. You know, it's interesting you say that because even when I was a, a, a child and we had a doctor that my, my parents always took us to, they put take my sister there decades earlier to the same doctor. And and I remember, you know, whenever whenever we get into conversations around my town, we'd always talk about, you know, recommending specific doctors. See this doctor, see that, mm-hmm. this doctor. Nowadays, I really, when I think about it, I just kind of thought about this when you were talking about it. I, I, all I hear people talking about is, oh, what coverage do you have? What do you have, <laughs> Aetna? Do you have, yeah. uh, you know, this or that? We're not talking, do you have Kaiser? We're not talking about the doctor, the human, we're talking about what giant conglomerate to do. Am I a number in now? And it's really a, a shocking uh, shift in the system. It absolutely is. It's become about healthcare coverage and not healthcare. Having health insurance does not mean access to quality healthcare. As a matter of fact, it, it's beginning to start, it's beginning to mean not getting access to quality healthcare because the, the, if you go outside of that system, you're going to be able to spend an hour with your doctor. They're going to be able to go over everything about you and what your needs are. They're not going to just write a prescription and be you know, typing on a computer screen. They're going to be looking at you and treating you as a whole patient. And you're going to spend a fraction of what you're spending using your insurance plan you know, to get that service. It's consumer-based healthcare as opposed to corporate-based healthcare. There's a complete difference. And people shop around for everything else. They shop around for their clothing. They shop around for the best price in a car. But they don't seem to want to do that or know that they can do that in the healthcare system. And it's, it's, it's alive. It's thriving. And it's the best kept secret. There's direct primary care practices. There are um, uh, medical cost sharing that, you, that, you just dis- that we just described where you can, you're a self-pay patient and you can go to any doctor, any hospital you want, but the company will negotiate your rates for you. And I love those patients because they actually pay me more than I get from insurance plans. The patient gets to decide what they want. There's no pre-certifications, no jumping through hoops. That's a huge difference for patients. Now, Dr. George, when I talk to people about this issue, a lot of times I'll have a lot of success in sort of describing the problems, even as you describe them, and getting to the point where they can say, okay, I can, I can kind of see where you're coming from. I can see how this regulation and even the, the ACA has been negative in many ways. But mm-hmm. then we'll get to the point where they'll say, but that being said, we're here where we are now, and there's so many people with, with pre-existing conditions that would lose coverage if we just took away Obamacare as it stands. So what would you say to people with those concerns who, who might even agree in principle with everything you're saying, but then they're concerned that, well, you know, you know, my, my friend's going to lose this insurance, and that's the only thing keeping him alive with his cancer treatments, and, and that's going to be taken away. So what, what would you say to people that are in that situation? What sort of, I guess, free market, either free market reforms or even legislative reforms? I know you mentioned maybe states could just 
at least be given block money to at least disassociate it from the insurance system so it's not affecting everything. But what would you sort of put forward for people that are in that situation that might really agree with you on the surface but have that one big concern about, about people just losing coverage that literally need it to survive? Well, for the people with the catastrophic illnesses like cancer or something really major, major medical, there's always Medicare and Medicaid. People don't talk about that. If you, God forbid, have to be admitted, they have to admit you under the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. Every hospital in this country will have to treat you and stabilize you without regard, irregardless of your, your um, ability to pay. So no one's going to go without coverage or care. It's whether it's going to be in someone's office by the private um, uh, patient. But there's plenty of things you can, and I would recommend people think of supplemental policies like AFLAC, especially if they're, if they're not sick now. This will give you a tremendous peace of mind. They have policies that cover if you have a heart attack, stroke, cancer, and they will literally pay you, a, a mon- you know, $250,000, for example, as straight. No questions asked if you get diagnosed with a catastrophic illness. You have to prepare for those folks who don't have an issue now. Prepare so you have the most power in case something happens. But for those that do, states like Alaska already have a catastrophic um, tract where they have a pool of money that can be used. And here in Georgia, we have one as well, where if you do get diagnosed with a catastrophic illness, the state will help cover your, the cost of your care. At this moment, it's not helping anybody. Most people are being priced out. And I get it. I want to cover those people too. But you're talking about how do you do the best for everybody with a limited pot? And the government has a role in this. But it's not Medicare for all. It's covering the people who actually need it and making it affordable and getting rid of these these ginned up prices. And I think one of the easiest ways to do that would be to have the hospitals have to list their prices online, price transparency. If you knew that it cost $1,200 for a CT scan in the hospital and $250 at the freestanding CT center next door, which one would you choose? And if people make conscious decisions, then the price for everybody would drop. It's the fact that nobody knows what anything costs that's keeping the situation going. But the government is not the answer for everything. Well, speaking of the government being the answer for everything, we might agree they're not, but uh, the politicians usually seem to think that they are. And uh, <laughs> I know. we are, of course, seeing a few different bills uh, or versions of bills bandied about uh, to re- essentially replace Obamacare under the Trump administration. And uh, luckily, we saw the first version of that spectacularly fail because it was really uh, hardly any change at all. Uh, but, you know, we have seen some other alternatives start to sort of come forward. I know Rand Paul had his own version. What I'm curious is if you were helping to craft uh, a replacement to Obamacare, we all know there's going to be some kind of replacement. Uh, what were the, are some of the features that you would want to be in that bill to steer things at least closer to a free market solution and, and give more power back to the doctors? What are just a, a few of the key items that you would want in there? Well, I get rid of the mandate because once you allow people to make their own choices, that helps everybody. I think that's already been removed in an um, executive order. The community rating, which is the one price for everybody, it needs to go because that's what's making the uh, the cost of premium so high. We're going to have a, we need a separate track for the people with catastrophic illnesses and and help for those people with pre-existing conditions. As I said, they're they're not a majority of the people getting coverage. It's only five percent, and that's from the CEO of Aetna. So this is the insurance company saying this. 
if we have a, a dedicated pot for those folks, that would save 95% of everybody else a, a ton of money. And that would drop the cost and everybody would be much happier. So no one has to lose their coverage. We just need a differential on where the money is coming from. Right now, the, I'm glad the thing failed too, because before it was the, the young people subsidizing everybody. Now it's the seniors. They have to pay a five to one differential premium rate compared to young people. So all they did is a shell game and just shift it to the seniors. This is why community rating has to go. It's time for people to pay based on their illness, like you do for cars, like you do for anything else. But those people who have the need for more healthcare needs, bigger ticket items, need to have help to pay for that. That's reasonable. I don't think anybody would argue that, right? Because everybody's getting covered, but it's not spread in such a way that everybody's getting hurt. I would also get rid of the keep your kid on to their 26. Why don't we at least drop it to age 23 so that you have more healthy young people in the pool? That would make sense. I would add price transparency so that everybody knows exactly what the cost is before they get the service instead of getting dinged with some crazy bill after the fact. And those are the things that I would do off, you know, right off the bat. Leave the free market alone. Let that you know, find its own level so people can make a choice between insurance-based or paying for themselves. And that would put pressure on the system. Well, Dr. George, I really do appreciate you coming on and on here and giving your perspective on this issue because, I mean, we can talk about free market economics all we want and we can talk about this and that regulation. But when it comes to actually communicating to real people, that doesn't mm-hmm. always get through. And I, I do think it really does help to have someone who's actually a professional in the industry out there speaking about these issues, not just speaking about them, uh, you know, from a high horse at a policy center somewhere, but you're speaking about them you know, quite literally from your own doctor's office, from your own private practice, from your own experience. And and really over your career, seeing how these government regulations over time have taken less and less power away from the patient and doctor relationship and skirted it uh, more towards the government and mega corporations. And I, I mean, think the I think the uh, the consequences of that are, are obvious to many, but not to everybody. And it's really important that we have voices out there like yours pointing out the problems and, and providing solutions. So I really do appreciate your time here today. Uh, before I let you go, why don't you feel free to plug anything else you've got going on? I know you've got you've got your weekly radio show and a podcast as well. And uh, so let people know where they can find that, where they can find your book. I'll link to that, of course, in today's show notes as well, which you can all find at lionsofliberty.com slash 294. Uh, and also uh, feel free to plug out your website and anything else you've got coming up. Sure. You can go to Dr. Elena George, D-R-E-L-A-I-N-A. George, like the man's name, is my website. I have a blog. There's a link to my radio show, Medicine on Call. Um, there's also a link for my book if you want to buy it. Um, the Medicine on Call show runs live Wednesday mornings on America's Web Radio, and it's podcast on um, Stitcher and um, iTunes uh, weekly. And it's all about solutions. I'm not about telling people what they need to do. I'm a big, you know, independence is the best thing, but you have knowledge is power. And if you know what your choices are, then it's all about being able to make a conscious choice. And I'm all for that. I think the people are in a position where They don't know what's going on, and it's tragic because these changes that are coming online are going to affect everybody for a very long period of time. But if you know what's best for you, you don't live in fear. You actually take your power back. And I really, you know, from a doctor's standpoint, 
I'm in doing my best to navigate out of this situation so I can be the best doctor that I can be for my patients. And they can go to um, aapsonline.org. They can go into jointhewedge.com, patientadvocatepartners.com. It's all listed on my website. These are all websites that that cater to patients who are, you know, self-thinking, self-motivated, and really want to take their power back and have a physician that is their advocate and wants them to be a partner in their care. And the, the pleasant surprise about it is it's much cheaper if you choose that side of healthcare. Well, Dr. George, thank you so much once again for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Elena George, a very nice and very knowledgeable woman. And I think it's wonderful when we have people within the medical industry that can really come out as figures of authority. I don't mean authority in the governmental way, but authority in the sense of they are experts in their field. This is someone who has worked her whole life basically in the medical industry and has run her own private practice and has firsthand experience with the effects of all this government regulation and and how that has only made things worse under Obamacare. And you know there are real problems out there that people have uh, as a result of, of the state of the medical industry. In, in this country. And we do need to be sympathetic to people, even though people have terrible ideas. I'm not saying we need to be sympathetic to leftist ideas, but we need to try to be sympathetic to people with serious medical problems that are concerned about the state of their coverage. You know, a lot of people haven't spent their lives deeply thinking about how we got here. They have just spent their lives sort of living in the world and then one day found themselves sick and they really only often think as deeply as, here's my current situation. And we can't just necessarily always explain things with, well, the free market will fix you. And I agree, the free market can help these people and charity can help these people, but they'll be able to more more able to do that when the government regulations go away, when the, the control, the command and control that the government has been exerting over the medical industry in so many different ways is peeled back. But we got we got to advocate both. You know, we can't just yell free market and run the other way and expect people to understand what we're saying. I know you guys don't do that because you listen to this show and you're used to hearing experts like Dr. Elena George speak about these issues in a way that will hopefully help you have these conversations out there. And I do want to highly recommend Dr. George's book. Again, the book is called Big Medicine, The Cost of Corporate Control and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. I will, like I said, link to that in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 294. Be sure to shop through our link. Shop through anything you buy over at Amazon through our link. You can find our link at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. Anything you buy gives us a little kickback, helps us keep the lights on, just like our friends in the Lions of Liberty Pride are helping to do. That is, of course, our private group for people who are supporters of the show, patrons of the program, who are contributing to help us cover our fees, help us cover the cost of getting this podcast to you three days per week, and helping us to grow the show eventually. Now that we're kind of covering our costs, we are really focusing on some ways that we can grow the show, uh, really get the word out there, get this conversation into more of those earbuds out there. Because really, to see any kind of change we want, whether it's in our culture, whether it's eventually in our government, we're going to need to change people's minds. And we're going to need to do it by having conversations, by having these conversations about the ideas of liberty. And speaking of great conversations, I want to let you know 
about another new podcast out there. Now, this is not a libertarian podcast per se, although you'll probably hear some ideas sprinkled in there because it's hosted by a big fan of this program, big supporter of the show by the name of Dan Smots. Now, you've heard us plug Dan a few times. He's got a musical musical project he's working on. Uh, he's helped out with a few jingles, including the Letters of Liberty jingle, and uh, he also designed our t-shirt line, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.store. So Dan has just done so much to help out this program, and he's got a really interesting show. Uh, it's called The System is Down. I want you to go to your podcast app, whatever you use, iTunes, Stitcher, yada, yada, yada. Just type in The System is Down, hit that subscribe button, and uh, he really gets in some interesting conversations about any, anything from conspiracies to religion to politics and everything and anything in between. And uh, it's really a fun show. Dan does a great job. And he's starting off with a bang, starting off with high quality audio, which of course uh, this show certainly didn't start out with. So so he's a step ahead already, and I just want to give a big shout out to Dan Smots. The system is down. Check it out. Another update I want to give you guys is on the work we are doing with Greg Glyer and Donorsey, along with uh, Clint Rankin, a big fan of the show, a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. And uh, we are working to have a uh, sort of a, a Liberty project where every month we're trying to fund projects through the Donorsey app, of course, a great charity app. And uh, this month we're working to fund Esther. Now, Esther's project, she is living with HIV in Africa, and uh, they're hoping to not only fund her medication for a year, but also pay to employ her to run a chicken farm, which is actually going to help for some of the local orphans have a place to live as well. So this really does have a reciprocal effect. It really does have, have a libertarian angle as well, because you're putting someone to work, you're helping someone be self-sufficient on top of a uh, you know, the, the charitable aspect of it. So I think it's a really great project. Again, we'll link to that over at today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 294. Now, next week, I think I'm going to gather a crew again. You know, people really love it when we get together, have some booze, answer letters of liberty. So we're going to do it again next week uh, and have a little libertarians in liberty rooms drinking liquor. I know you guys love it. Until then, I'm going to give you one little preview because I think it's time to take a little dip into the Liberty Mailbag and answer. Some letters of liberty. This is another letters of liberty song. That last one I wrote was a downer. It somehow just fell wrong. The lion said they didn't like it. I'm not sure if that's true. So I'm gonna keep on writing till I find the one they do. So please help me validate my poor life choices. All right, and my first letter of liberty today comes from Andrew Swain. Andrew asks, Will Edward Snowden ever come back to the States? Is there any scenario you can imagine where Trump would be the one to make that happen? Most importantly, is there any chance he will be pardoned or at least allowed a fair trial? Uh, and, uh... Ever? When we use the term ever, I really want to be optimistic in the long term. Uh, that's someone like Edward Snowden, if we believe the uh, the surface story. I know there are people out there that, that think Edward Snowden releasing that information is actually part of a grander conspiracy to sort of, uh, you know, condition the American public to know about this spying and sort of alter their behavior. Because without the, the foreknowledge of the spying, you know, that, that doesn't temper political dialogue as much as some might hope. So that's one theory. I'm not saying it's my theory. I'm saying it's a theory I've heard. That's all. But let's just stick with the surface level. We'll keep the conspiracies to the Conspiracy Corner. We, of course, just had another edition of Conspiracy Corner. And if you haven't heard that, again, that's because you're not a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. That's a bonus show we do. Try to keep the conspiracy talk off this show. This is mostly about the ideas of liberty. Try to stay somewhat focused on that one. But for the Conspiracy Corner... 
go ahead and join the pride. Only five bucks a month. You can find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash support. Now, back to your question, Andrew. Like I said, when we're talking about ever, we're talking about long-term, I like to think someday Edward Snowden might find his way back to the United States. But when it comes to Donald Trump, for some reason, it doesn't seem like Trump is very friendly to Edward Snowden. He's had a lot of words about Edward Snowden. He's used the term traitor. He's uh, referenced the death penalty. I know the director of the CIA that he appointed, Mike Pompeo, has also uh, pretty much had some negative words about Edward Snowden, referenced him being a traitor as well. So I don't see this administration as being one that's going to be friendly to Edward Snowden. Uh, so as long as Donald Trump is president, most people would say that's only going to be four years. Some would say less. Uh, I kind of think he might be a two-term president, but that's another conversation. Either way, as long as he's in office, I really have a hard time seeing Edward Snowden returning to the United States unless it's against his will, uh, unless it's, uh, you know, as part of some extradition treaty. Maybe Trump will work some sort of magic with Russia and get him sent here. Uh, but I hope that certainly doesn't happen because he, he does not have a friendly administration here in the United States. Uh, I do certainly wish Donald Trump was more friendly to Edward Snowden and, uh, and to WikiLeaks, especially considering uh, how much they leaked out about Hillary Clinton, his opponent, you'd think he'd be a little more maybe um, respectful or at least sympathetic to, to people like that. But uh, at the end of the day, Donald Trump is is representing the establishment of the United States, an establishment that still has an NSA, you know, an establishment that has a Mike Pompeo who's all about NSA spying, who's all about torture, uh, who's all about all the things that people like Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks were fighting to uncover. So no, I, and I'd like to think maybe 30, 40, 50 years down the road, it'll be a friendlier environment. Maybe history will treat Edward Snowden better, and someday he'll be able to actually be back here in the United States, the place he grew up, the place he has many friends and family, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. Moving along to another quickie from Jack Stalker. He says, so I have a libertarian professor here in the Albany area who will be representing to the NYLP, the New York Libertarian Party, on why the LP will be the new centrist party. What are your thoughts in regards to the future of the Libertarian Party and the Greater Liberty Movement as a viable, publicly identified centrist movement? Now, I know a lot of listeners are going to shudder at that term, centrist. And uh, I kind of do, too, in a way. Uh, I am a little triggered by it. I don't, I don't really like the idea, uh, at least politically, of uh, the Libertarian Party, although I certainly don't hinge the entire liberty movement in any way, shape, or form on the Libertarian Party. That is only one small aspect of the specifically political aspect of the liberty movements. And I think there are many aspects. There's the political, cultural, etc. And then within each, there's many aspects of that. So the Libertarian Party is a teensy, teensy, tiny part of the liberty movement. But if it's on a good track and if the right opportunity presented itself, it certainly has the ability, potentially, to do good. And uh, But I don't like the idea of the Libertarian Party or the liberty movement being seen as centrist in the sense of, oh, we'll just take the best parts of the Democratic Party and we'll take the best parts of the Republican Party and we'll smush them all together. And that's libertarianism. I don't really like that. And I know that's kind of the Gary Johnson method. And that might be a way that gets voters from some people. But if we're talking about a, a grander movement, we need to be changing minds, hearts and minds, as they say. But there's many ways you can do that. Politics is only one of them. Uh, on the other hand, in some ways, you know, the, the American public, you always hear about how people hate the extremes. They hate the extremists. And so many people like to call themselves independents because they're reasonable. They're kind of in the middle. They, they're not extreme Republicans. They don't have posters of Paul Ryan in the room or, or Bernie Sanders posters or whatever. Uh, they're just they don't see themselves as ultra political. 
Now, to them, being centrist in the, in the sense of representing their views in terms of being seen as more reasonable, well, I don't think that's too bad of a, a marketing strategy if, if we can sell it in that certain way or if, they, or if the public starts to view it in that way. Because really, uh, to me, the libertarian position, the liberty position is the reasonable position. Not throwing an old lady in jail because she has a marijuana plant, that's being reasonable. That should be what centrist is. And actually, today in America, that is what centrist is, you know, on that specific issue, not on many other libertarian issues necessarily. Uh, But it should be. I mean, polls have even shown that a large part of America generally holds many libertarian positions, and especially on the war on drugs, that's that's changing rapidly. But it's not translating into political success, at least not for the libertarian party. But I mean, hey, if we look 10 years ago, we had no congressmen that were even remotely as good as, say, Rand Paul, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, except, well, of course, for Ron Paul at the time. But we have a lot more people in office now, in national office, that actually hold pretty strong liberty positions. You can debate whether you want if they're quote-unquote libertarian or not, but they're certainly much better than anyone that was in there besides Ron Paul even a decade ago. And hopefully we can get a few more people like that in office. And if you get a a decent enough block, I mean, the the Freedom Caucus, and I don't know if all those guys are necessarily quote-unquote freedom, the Freedom Caucus, they had an effect. They shut shut down the first version of Trump Care. Looks like they just are passed another version of it, so maybe it didn't have too much effect. But point being, there are many ways to achieve political success, and I think being seen as centrist in the sense by the public of being on their side, being reasonable, not being extremists. I want to be politically extreme in the sense I think libertarians should be radically different from the Democrats and Republicans. But I don't know if we need to be radically different from from what's reasonable. Because really, a lot of these issues, when you talk one-on-one with people, they can end up agreeing with you. You just got to break it down for them and have a reasonable conversation. And then maybe they, they realize that they're libertarians or they hold a lot of these views, even if they don't call it libertarian. And maybe... They, see, they have seen themselves as centrist their whole lives. They see themselves as, as independent, so to speak. So maybe they, they start accepting some libertarian ideas in that way. That's the way I'm, I'm sort of twisting this po- the potential good of this idea. Uh, but generally, no. I mean, I want to I be known as a radical. But the, 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 the point of being radical is to actually alter things, to change the system as it, as it is. So one day you want to move from being radical to being normal, to being accepted. You want your vision of society to actually take shape. There's no sense in being radical just for the sake of being radical. So yeah, I, I guess the goal in some way should be for libertarian ideas, these radical ideas that we hold, to become the true center ideas, to become the ideas that most people hold, that the people in the middle, the majority of people, the independents, the ideas that they accept. Did I answer the question or did I just go on a rant? I don't know. It's kind of what I do here. It's what we do here three days a week. Not just me on Mondays, but we also got Brian McWilliams, of course, every single Wednesday with Electric Liberty Land, his take on pop culture, comedy, a little bit of liberty too, and of course, John Odermatt doing a bang-up job on Fridays with his look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. No matter what app you use, hitting that button, big help for us. And, of course, leaving us a five-star rating and a great review. Another way you can help this program. Until next time, folks, live long and live free.